Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Daniel Hemmel. Daniel is a professor at New York University Law School uh, and a bunch of things we want to talk to him about. But Dan, thanks for coming on. And like you, you and Alex Summer from my team, how, how did we find each other? Um, I reached out because I'm trying to figure out a way to get New York to extend the child tax credit to okay. kids zero to four uh, and had an initial conversation with Alex about that. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that the New York State child tax credit does not apply to kids who are zero to four, but they don't count as children for New York State tax. What do they count as? Yeah. Just they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. And then I think Alex said to me, hey, there's this guy who's really interesting. You should have him on Firewall. And here you are. So thank you for uh, for coming in. For Do you, do you live downtown already because you teach at NYU? Did we make you travel far to come to the bookstore? I live in Greenwich Village, yeah, uh, so not just north of Houston Street. Yeah, um, so you- I used to live in... Chicago. I'm a University of Chicago guy, uh, like you. Um, but it's really nice to be. Did you live in Hyde Park, or did you live in the other parts of the city? Uh, I first lived in Hyde Park, uh, and then my spouse pointed out that all of our prof- all of our friends were tax professors at the University of Chicago. Uh, so we should probably well, who wouldn't want right, that, great, right? great what, group of friends. What else could you ask for? Um, so where were you before you got to, to Hyde Park? Uh, before I got to Hyde Park, I. Lived in D.C. and clerked for Justice Kagan. Got it. So here's the question that I, when I got there for law school, um, and it makes sense, your first, especially first year of law school, is, you know, to live, live on campus because it's so fucking intense. But um, I'd come from Manhattan. To, I was in my 20s living in East Village. And I was like, holy shit, like, there's nothing to do here. There's no food. It'd be at 10 o'clock at night, and the only thing I could do is eat from the fucking vending machine. Now, I'm sure it's changed over time. But I had this vast culture shock when I moved there. And then I realized, oh, Chicago's this incredible city. I could live in other neighborhoods, and it could be really fun. And that's exactly what happened. Was that your experience? Yes. Uh, I found Lakeview, where I ultimately lived, yep. more fun uh, than Hyde Park. But I, I also think Hyde Park has had a good past decade. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I, I, I'll be there on Thursday to teach a class at Booth. And uh, I do like whenever I get to campus... I, I kind of come speak a couple times a semester. I take like an hour, if, if I have it, to wander around first, just because it is interesting to see how much has changed and evolved, though and this is not the point of the podcast at all, but one question, which is, it seems to me that a lot of the money that the school invested in its facilities in recent years came from an influx of cash from foreign-born students who were paying the, the full sticker price or, or then some, and because of COVID and politics and whatever else, we have fewer foreign students. Um, is, is that true? And if so, how does that affect the budgets of schools like NYU or University of Chicago and the way that they kind of spend money? I think a reduction in foreign LLMs coming to law schools and foreign undergrads, it's going to matter yeah. uh, to schools. Um, those are the students who are less likely to be getting financial aid, more likely to be uh, pulling, uh, paying full freight. Um, that said, the law school at the University of Chicago has other funding sources. Uh, Carlisle Group, uh, yep. having a really great three decades, uh, has been awesome for the University right. of Chicago. And I would also say the, the, the David Rubenstein model is interesting because his funding for the University of Chicago is not in endowment form. It's in re-upping every several years, which if I were a donor, I would do that rather than contributing so to the I'll, endowment. I'll give you two two cross points. To that. So one would be, um, I donated what, for me, was a meaningful amount of money uh, to the University of Chicago. Um, not Rubenstein money, but, but real money. And I actually gave it to them with no conditions at all. And I just said, do whatever you want with it. I, you're a great institution. I really like going there. Um, I trust you guys. Rather than me dictating 
how to spend it or putting my name on something. I don't care what you do with it. The level of appreciation that I received for doing that, and that's not why I did it, because I didn't know that at the time, was so disproportionate to the amount that I gave that I would argue that it is actually worth it in most cases to do that because people are so, because no one does it and it's so helpful to them. But the other thing is, so I, I teach at Columbia Business School and um, they just built this new campus, started teaching out of this this year. It's incredible, right? So I teach in the, in the Geffen building or last week it was in the Kravis building, right? I got to imagine both of those guys gave nine figures to the business school to build these buildings, right? Is it a nice place to teach? Yes. Do I understand that? Business school effectively is a, an armed force, an arms race business where all these different schools are competing against each other. Sure. Could you have taken that couple hundred million dollars and done basically anything with a society that would be better than a nice business school or a nice law school that David Rubenstein pays for? Yes. Right? It does feel like a total fucking waste of money. So when NYU Law School is paying for all of these things to basically boost its relative standing to Columbia or Yale or Harvard or whatever it is, and that money could have gone to, to people who need the child care tax credit. How do you feel about that? Um, two thoughts. One, I think there are investments that one can make at academic institutions that do have huge yield. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the work that's led to the effective altruism movement has happened in universities and not just in economics departments, but also in philosophy departments. Yeah, for sure. Um, on the other hand, I think some of the money that goes to law schools and other professional schools is just for US news rankings. And that's obviously a zero sum game. There can only be right. one number three school in right. the country. Right, right. Or actually, I, there can I, be two with a tie, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, as I understand effective altruism, Will McCaskill or Peter Singer would say, definitely do not give $100 right. million dollars to make a law school or a business school nicer, so they have better conference. That's like literally the least effective uh, use of your money, right? I could imagine worse things uh, yeah, to do with that. Gold it's, it's, seats at the Met Opera, but yeah, 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 sure. yeah. but you're 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 getting there. Um, all right, so let's start with Trump because I know that you have some insight into this, and everyone kind of is, is curious. So there's got there's the DOJ thing on the documents. There's the New York State. There's election nearing problems in Georgia, and, and half a dozen other potential issues. Um, does somebody indict this guy at some point, or does he just continue to live this Teflon life? I'd say 50% chance that he ultimately gets indicted. For Okay, so for which one and why? Yeah, right. So each one is less than yeah. uh, 50%. So New York State, Letitia James is not pursuing a criminal case against him. Right. Civil lawsuit. I don't know whether he'll end up paying $250 million. I thought that was a lot to ask for. He doesn't pay but, anyway. What's the difference? Um, it's like negotiating with your kids. Like They'll say yes to anything because they have no intention of doing it. Um, I mean, Hank Greenberg did end up paying $9 million to... New York, the he, New York AG. He, he, under, he did, but right. Hank Greenberg did not have an army of tens of millions right. of people who listen to whatever right. he says. You're right. Uh, it may be ultimately the, the Fox News or Breitbart yeah. uh, uh, followers who, who foot the bill. Um, and then Georgia, it's just really, I'm not an expert on Georgia law, uh, so it's really hard for me to assess the, the Georgia case yeah. uh, on um, election tampering. I would say that, uh, I mean, everything that we learn about the documents just keeps on getting worse. Uh, so it's a really it's a really tough question for Merrick Garland whether to proceed with right. an indictment, and I think also a tough question as to is this a decision that Merrick Garland should make in isolation from President Biden? I mean, it's the most important decision of the Biden administration. Right. So, so what's the yes or no? If you if, if Garland called you and said, "What do I do here?" What's what's your answer? Uh, I would want to plan beforehand, and I would want to make that plan public beforehand. So, if he's going to call the White House counsel before an indictment. 
we should know that that's what's going to happen rather than it coming out six days later that Garland checked with the White House counsel before proceeding with the indictment. Um, now, if you're the if you're the White House counsel, and I forget who it even is at the moment, but like, wouldn't you be pretty fucking upset if you saw Trump got indicted and you didn't have a heads up about it and didn't tell the president? Yes, uh, that'd be uh, right. kind of a problem, right? And if you were uh, a swing voter who's suspicious of Democrats but also uneasy about Trump, yeah. and you learned that Garland indicted Trump after checking with Biden, you'd also be pretty upset yeah. about it. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. So. Okay, so if Garland says, what level, what standard, so okay, if Garland says, look, Dan, I would normally, on a scale of 1 to 10, if I had evidence that reached 6.5, I would issue an indictment against someone, so a regular person. What does that number have to be against Trump? I think it probably has to be 9.8. Got it. So you uh, have to have slam dunk, can't lose the case. Well, I would say even if you're 10 out of 10, you can lose the case because ultimately you're going to a jury of 12 people uh, and you pick 12 random people in the country. It's pretty likely that one of them is a true Trumpista. Uh, yep. So even in like, um, so if Trump got indict indicted for the document stuff, where do they try him? Is that in the District of Columbia? Certainly you want to try him in the District of Columbia right. rather and than in Florida. And your odds of one of the 12 being a crazy Trumper go down. Go down, yeah. uh, but Trump, zero. right. Okay. Um, so, okay, so if, if you were the AG and you had a 9.8 there, what would stop you, if anything, from moving ahead with an indictment? How, how afraid are you of actual real violence, civil war, that kind of civil unrest, at least? Uh, a little bit afraid. Um, Trump has incited a mob once, um, and I'm sure he would try again if he thought that uh, his freedom were on the line. Uh, it orients the 2024 election about Trump uh, rather than about uh, other things that Biden has accomplished. Maybe that's good when inflation is 8%. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a less salient concern with respect to going after him for January 6th than for other things. Uh, but we do run the risk that we end up as Brazil, uh, where each party just investigates. Basically, you either, after uh, after being president, you either end up you know, on Mount Rushmore or in Sing Sing. Right, and we're sort of seeing that in Congress already, right? That we know that the minute that the House flips, which I, I think it's still think it's a pretty safe bet that it will. Now, Hunter Biden seems like a super sleazy guy. Let me say, I don't care what happens to Hunter Biden, but he's going to start being the subject of all kinds of congressional inquiries the minute that the Judiciary Committee flips from, from D to R. By the way, maybe he's been protected unfairly because he's never. Who, who knows? But the point is, we've seen this constant aggressive use of the judicial system really since, I mean, of, of the kind of political system since Clinton, I guess, arguably, right? Yeah, you could date it to Clinton. Uh, arguably, it's Iran-Contra. Uh, I would say yep. Watergate kind of created itself. Uh, but um, query whether... January 6th had something to do with this, right? Tr January 6th is Trump's fault, and it's the insurgents' fault, uh, the insurrectionists' fault. On the other hand, uh, Trump believed in December 2020 that staying on for another term or not quite likely affected whether he would be in prison or not. Raising the stakes of presidential transitions that much, I think, is not the direction that we want to go in. Right. And so at the end of the day, if you had to guess, knowing what you know now, and if you have any inside information, obviously don't reveal it on this podcast. I have no inside information. Okay. Um, will Donald Trump, A, be indicted before the 2024 election? And if so, even if indicted, will he run for president? 
uh, I'm more confident about B. If he's indicted, I think he's running for president. Uh, on A... So, so, by the way, what a fucking amazing statement that you just made, right? And I just right. nodded, right? How fucking crazy is that? That you said it, I nodded, and then we had to take a step back and be like, oh my God, this is the world we're living in now. Yeah, I mean, it's right. a world that Israel's been living there for a while. The idea yeah. of someone running for office while indicted is kind of par for the course. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing that in Brazil. Yep. Um, I'd say for, for A, chances of indictment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my, my 50%, maybe 40, maybe 60. And that way, whatever happens, you can't say I'm wrong. There you go. All right. Child care tax credit. You're a passionate supporter of it. My guess is that people may not quite understand the logistics and impact of it as well as you kind of think you do. So let's just start with the basic. What is the child care tax credit? Great. So there's a child tax credit and there's a child independent care credit. Okay. The child independent care credit gives you a little more than $1,000 if you're relatively low down the um, income distribution for sending your kids to childcare. Uh, and uh, I think let's set that to the side. Uh, the child tax credit at the federal level, um, it's $2,000 a year per kid, at least as long as the 2017 Trump tax law remains mm -hmm. in effect. Um, after 2025, it will revert to $1,000 a year. Uh, so this is cash in the hands of families that need it to raise kids. Uh, and at the federal level, it's kids who are age 0 through 16. Uh, New York State has its own child tax credit, as do a bunch of other states. Uh, New York's caps out at $333, and it only starts at age 4. So kids 0 through 3 are ineligible for the New York State child tax credit. So what happened during the pandemic that all of a sudden made this a much bigger issue and started opening up the spigot of funding? Great. Uh, Michael Bennett, Sherrod Brown, uh, Cory Booker, a few other senators, okay. Bennett and Brown were really the ones who were pushing this, yep. uh, had a bill that would have raised the child tax credit to $3,600 a year for kids uh, under six, and then $3,000 a year after that. Okay. Uh, paid out in 12 monthly installments. So this would be regular income rather than a big lump sum for low-income families. But not taxable income. Not taxable income, yeah, right. right. Uh, but something that you could rely on for your grocery bills rather than something that came once a year that maybe you would use for a big expense. Yeah. Um, and Biden said as part of the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, so the first big Biden stimulus package, really the only big Biden stimulus package, um, we'll do this for one year. And we'll pay it out in monthly installments. And the expectation was this would be so popular that it would get renewed. Uh, but it fell a couple of votes short of that. Right. So, so, so on the substance itself, uh, you're a family of four making $40,000 a year living in uh, kind of the, the middle of the country. What does it mean? How does your life change either by having it or by losing it? Um, makes a big difference if you've got two kids who are... Uh, under six, getting $7,200 a year. Uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, now, right now you're getting $4,000 a year if you're making $40,000. Uh, some people who are lower down the income spectrum are actually getting less than the full credit because there's a income-based yeah. uh, phase in. Um, we have some evidence uh, from looking at uh, kids who got the earned income tax credit, whose families got the earned income tax credit in the 1990s, uh, what that did to their trajectories. Uh, and the best estimate, uh, this is from Andrew Barr and co-authors at Texas A&M, uh, 
uh, an extra $1,300 one time in infancy uh, leads to, by the time you're in your 20s, you're making, if you're a male, $600 to $800 extra a year. If you're a female, $100 to $200 extra a year. So long-term so, so, effects. Okay, so what did the parents do with that $1,300 that had such a disproportionately positive impact that we don't see when lots of government-run programs, the, the funding is increased for them? Uh, I think one important thing is it's not going to be the same answer for everyone, and that means that a one-size-fits-all government program, unless that one size that fits all is cash, right. uh, isn't going to deal with the diversity of needs uh, that people have. Um, buying healthier food, buying enough food, uh, dealing with a car that breaks down, reducing the stresses of life that uh, take parents away from raising kids that sometimes <coughs> accelerate divorce. Uh, so... Uh, it's not, there's one thing that every family needs, uh, except that what every low-income family does need is cash. Right. So, so then, given that it seems like th this program works pretty well, which maybe gets the larger argument of when you put cash in people's hands, they probably will know what to do with it in a way that benefits themselves and their families more than if they're applying for a benefit of some kind, Right. How does that make you feel about the broader notion of universal basic income? And do you think that if we were able to say, okay, we're going to have fewer social service programs, but we are going to put a lot more cash into people's hands, is that better or worse than what we have now? I'm all in on a universal basic income. Uh, it depends on what the program design is. Uh, so I think, for example, Andy Stern, the labor leader, sure. had a universal basic income plan that didn't include kids as units receiving the universal basic income, and yep. the consequence would actually have been pretty bad for some low-income households. But if you construct a universal basic income right uh, and include kids in it, uh, I think it could be hugely beneficial. Um, and in order to be hugely beneficial, it doesn't need to be an income replacement. It doesn't need to be you can stop working and live above the poverty line on the universal basic income. Uh, even a few thousand dollars, which isn't going to take you from zero to above the poverty line makes a big difference for low-income families right. with kids. So, so like here in New York, we spend I think, twice the national average on public education, right? You were talking about that we have a $333 child tax credit here, and it doesn't even start till the age of four. Um, we keep spending more and more and more money on our schools with seemingly not much improvement in the actual results in terms of, you know, the graduation rates go up a little bit, but again, having worked in government, I can tell you that these numbers are sort of manipulable to a certain extent. Um, but you think about just sort of college readiness and, and, you know, less of an issue for you at NYU, but but like, for example, you look at people teach at CUNY and things like that, they would tell you that most of their students are just not up to basic, you know, 12th grade level work, let alone college work. Um, what if we said, you know what, okay, instead of spending 35 grand a year per kid on public education, and I get that there's a mix of federal and local, and so the sources come from different places, 20% of that is going to get taken off the top and be given as cash instead to those families. Do those kids then ultimately have a better chance at life than if that money were spent on the classroom? My guess would be yes, uh, but I don't think that's where we would go first for the money in order to expand the New York State Child Tax Credit. Uh, so there's a bill from Andrew Hevesy, uh, who's uh, from downstate here, yeah. and uh, Jeremy Cooney, who's a state senator up in Rochester, mm -hmm. that would expand the New York State Child Tax Credit to include kids under five, uh, kids under four, um, and it would make the credit $1,000 for kids under four, $500 uh, above that. This would cost $1.4 billion uh, 
in addition to what we're currently spending on the child tax credit, which is a drop in the bucket uh, when you think about a $220 billion state budget. Where would I go first for those $1.4 billion? I probably wouldn't raid the school budget. I'd like not give people gas tax rebates. Right. There are well, a bunch well, of other things that we could do first. By the way, in order to get the state legislature to go along with the bailout for the Buffalo Bills for their new stadium, Hochul had to give them a couple billion dollars in extra spending cash to buy them off. That would have easily taken care of it. Right. Probably would have doubled it, actually, right there alone. Um, so you mentioned that there was this assumption by kind of Democrats, at least, that the child care tax credit would prove so popular that, you know, there's this view that once you create some sort of benefit or entitlement, it's almost impossible to take it away, right? And that's, by the way, sometimes used in favor of the of the entitlement benefit or sometimes used against it, right? But I think it's generally true. It was not true here. Why do you think that happened? Um. Yeah, it, it polled reasonably well. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hugely unpopular policy, but uh, it wasn't uh, the catnip for voters that uh, we thought it would and, be. And is that because the people who are benefiting the most from it are not necessarily likely primary voters, and therefore, um, even if it helped them disproportionately, their needs didn't really matter because they're not part of the input? Um, I think it's a few things. One, it was delivered in a low, low salience way. So it just showed up as an additional direct deposit in your bank account rather than you getting a letter signed by Joe Biden saying, here, I'm giving you more money. Uh, so I, th I assume people noticed that more money was going into their bank account, yeah. uh, but it wasn't like seeing a new bridge uh, or seeing a new school where there's a visual representation of uh, what's going on. Uh, the ways that it helps families uh, are uh, difficult to observe ways, right? So I don't really see whether the people who I walk by on the street or see at the playground, uh, whether they're eating nutritious meals or not when they're back in their kitchens. Uh, and I think the child tax credit polls or the child tax credit polls better when the income phase out is lower. Right? You could think yeah. that that would go either way, that middle class voters like getting it or middle class voters <laughs> get it and think, well, I'm not sure I really need this. Shouldn't the government be taxing me less? Uh, but it seems pretty consistently true that a lower phase out uh, would boost support for the program. All right. So, so now take it to a much broader level. And we said, OK, we're going to overall um, maintain taxes as they are. We're going to cut government spending across the board by 50%, and all of that is going to be reflected in, a, in basic cash going into people's pockets. Better society, worse society, where do you think we land? Um, I think if we implement a universal basic income, we're going to have to raise taxes. I mean, if we want it to be a substantial sum. Uh, but uh, if you were to take 50% out of the federal budget, then you'd be uh, pretty quickly eating into... Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Yeah, so let, let's say, you, you know, right, but let's say some of the discretionary programs were, like you theoretically, like I, I am a huge supporter of SNAP. I run camp, fund and run campaigns all over the country to mandate SNAP in different ways. But in theory, if everyone were getting, you know, $10,000 right. a year in cash, they buy their own food. They don't actually need SNAP, right? So like in theory, the cash should replace at least some of the more discretionary, non-structural things in people's lives as opposed to, say, Medicare or something like that, which is just you can't really navigate that on your own as an individual. Yeah, I'd say um, if we're taking money away from Medicaid, Medicaid also seems to be a pretty high-yield investment. Yeah. Um, SNAP, I don't think it matters all that much whether you call it SNAP or you call it uh, UBI. Uh, maybe it matters emotionally to the people who are getting it, uh, but they're, they're 
uh, their SNAP benefit is less than what they would totally, what they would in total spend on food. Right. Well, right. If anything, there's still right. stigma attached to SNAP. Right. So in theory, you'd be better off just having the money in your household to, to get food. Now, look, I, we still right. argue that every meal at school, every breakfast, every lunch should just be free and open to every single kid. And if they're hungry, they eat. If they're not hungry, they don't eat. And that's the way it should work. Um, but, you know, those are hard, expensive bills to pass. We passed Vermont last year, but it was a struggle. And, um, you know, working on more states for next year, whether it's Pennsylvania, Nevada, Massachusetts. But, yeah, uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it does sort of argue that just putting the money in people's pockets might, might go a longer way. Yeah, m- my spouse focuses on affordable housing policy, so uh, I'll have to hope that she's n- not listening to this. But if we liquidated Section 8... You uh, know she's like one of right. our most regular right. listeners. She's always calling her asking me about shit. Uh, <laughs> and if we, if we liquidated Section 8 and gave the money out to Section yes. 8 recipients, I'm quite confident that the world would be better off. Right. Landlords might not be better off because landlords get a portion of the benefit of right. totally. uh, Section 8, but that's precisely the problem. Right, totally. Um, Interesting. So then this kind of veers towards something else that you are interested in writing about, which is kind of tax policy in regards to philanthropy, nonprofit spending, everything else. And, you know, th- there's been this kind of view that at least I've noticed over the last sort of five, six years of, you know, foundations maybe actually aren't doing as much good as we think that they are, and that they're basically tax havens for the rich, and they become forms of tax avoidance and evasion as opposed to, um, you know, trying to genuinely benefit society. You know, that view, which seems to fit very well with kind of a DSA, you know, we hate the rich view, which is politically very salient. Um, do you agree with that view, or do you just think that's sort of where the politics are today? I think I neither agree with that view nor think that's where the politics are okay. today. Great. I would say if, if your political goal is to repeal the tax exemption for private foundations, you are fighting an uphill battle and there's a 1% or less than 1% chance that you will succeed. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I'd feel, if I were a private foundation enjoying tax benefits, I'd be pretty confident that I will continue to enjoy yeah. uh, those tax benefits. I'd say in terms of impact, it really depends on the foundation. So the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation has done extraordinary work, right? Bill Gates has, somewhat ironically, been a huge force for global income redistribution from the rich to the poor. Uh, He's been taking money from Netscape uh, and giving it to starving people in Africa. Uh, That's effective altruism. Yeah. Um, But uh, then there are a lot of private foundations that, as you mentioned before, are just building nicer buildings at Columbia Business School. And if you want to build at NYU, that's fine. Sure, but at course, Columbia, but then, you probably yeah, should be getting right. those huge tax Sketchy, benefits. Yeah. Um, right, right. So, I mean, it's, it seems to me that at least the direction that I want to try to move things in. So I, I, I guess I am a philanthropist, but have only been for recently because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And then I spent the first good chunk of my career working in government politics and didn't make any money. Um, what I have noticed, and look, the amount of money I have to spend is, is de minimis compared to Bill Gates or someone like that. But um, when I'm willing to use and combine philanthropy and politics, we can achieve nonlinear results, right? So I'll give you a couple of examples. So one would be uh, the stuff that we do on hunger. So I've spent about $4 million of my own money so far um, on hunger-related programs, there were two ways to go with it. One would be, let's, okay, let's find, you know, let's give a uh, hundred grand to every food bank in the country or whatever it is. Fine. That would have helped a lot of people. The other is what we did with it, which is we said, we are going to pick states in which we think it's feasible to pass bills that mandate universal school meals, breakfast after the bell, expanded snack for seniors, whatever it is. 
and use the money instead to pass laws that then unlock new government funding um, for these programs. So the, the campaigns we've been involved in, 19 states, uh, bills, bills that we've passed have unlocked about a billion and a half in new government funding for hunger programs, feeding about 12 million more people on a regular basis. To me, that was a nonlinear result. Now, what did I lose? I lost the tax benefits, right? Because generally speaking, because I'm engaged in political activity, C4, not PAC, but still political activity, I don't really get the, the deductions, right? Um, and two, this isn't really a problem on hunger, because if, if you want to attack me for trying to feed hungry kids, go right fucking ahead. But other stuff that I do, like mobile voting, or just more controversial issues like guns or immigration or climate or whatever it is, you're putting yourself into the you know harm's way in a way that you don't have to if you're just giving the money to you know business school, whatever the fuck it is. Um, do you see one, am I right that the opportunity to do a lot more with the money is significantly greater if you were to merge these two? And if so, is that a trend developing or, or not really? First, that's great work that you've been doing on child hunger Thank across you. the country. I did the whole point of the podcast was just so I could say how great I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> second, I'm not sure whether you get the highest dollar impact outside of the United States doing things like giving cash to people or malarial bed nets to people okay. or inside the United States doing these nonlinear, high risk, huge reward investments. Right, tell me why. Uh, but I would say, uh, food banks in the United States are not going to be the highest impact uh, way to spend your dollar. The reason why it might be outside of the United States is you know, an extra few thousand dollars outside the United States can potentially save a life. Right? Uh, there are organizations that give yes. well evaluates that are um, you know, doing school-based deworming programs where we think a few extra thousand dollars is actually going to save a life or uh, anti-malaria programs. The third point that I want to make is uh, going back to there are no tax benefits from going through a C4, depending on how you structure it, there are huge tax benefits for going through a C4. For Bill Gates, it didn't really matter to him much whether the Gates Foundation was a C3 or a C4. Right? He's got Is a lot. Because he has so much money, it's irrelevant? No, because um, he's going to run into the charitable contribution deduction cap. You can only deduct charitable contributions up to 60% of your adjusted gross income. Right. For Bill Gates, his adjusted gross income is very small relative to his yep. financial wealth. Yep. Right? Uh, the big benefit for him of giving on top of that is he has Microsoft stock that he bought for zero. It's now worth, you know, let's say, 1000 uh, he gives it to the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation sells the stock. No one pays taxes on the gains. And that's the same whether it's the Gates Foundation or a C4. So I would say if you're someone with low basis stock, you should be, I mean. He, you, and, then, and then that money that's untaxed is then used for political activity? Um, it still has to qualify for C4 status. Uh, so as long, you can't be spending more than 50% on politicking in the sense of actually intervening in you know, Biden campaigns. Uh, but yeah, you could be using low basis stock, contribute it to your C4, use that to push for uh, child hunger legislation yeah. uh, and not be paying tax on the gains. Interesting. So like I, again, at my minuscule levels, you know, will direct certain amounts of equity that I have in funds or companies into my donor advised fund, right? And that is tax-free, right? But as I at least understand it, if I want to deploy money from the donor advised fund um, into my hunger campaigns, I can only, at least what my lawyer told me, maybe we're overly conservative. Yes, if I want to give a grant to feeding Kentucky as part of the overall campaign in Kentucky, so let's say I'm going to spend 
quarter of a million dollars in Kentucky to pass a, a little piece of a little piece of legislation, and twenty percent of that, wherever it is, is going to the local nonprofit to sort of help them help us, right? That's deductible, but the lobbyists, the pollsters, the PR, the digital ads, all of that, as I understand it, I'm paying for with, with regular dollars, with non-tax actual dollars. Am I doing something wrong? Yes. What am I doing wrong? Uh, you should be transferring your low basis stock yeah. to your C4 and having your C4 sell the low basis stock. And they can do that on a tax-free basis, even though the money is then being used for political purposes. Political meaning legislative purposes, not, yes. not electoral. Yes, advocacy purposes, right. Uh, that you're not getting a charitable contribution deduction for that, right? So you're not, when you do it through your donor advised fund, not only do you get non-taxation of the appreciation, but you also get, if you're in the top bracket, the 37 cent on the dollar deduction. Yeah. So you're giving up that. Uh, but yeah, definitely fund your, I mean, this is the, the Patagonia uh, trip light idea. This is what the Chenard family did. They had Patagonia stock that they bought for essentially zero. It's now worth three billion. They want to use that for climate advocacy work that can't be done through a C3. They gave it to their C4. They didn't root it through a donor advised fund. The donor advised fund, if the donor advised fund is structured as a C3, it won't let you yeah. then recommend grants out to your C4. They just gave it straight to this new C4 they've created. And in the process, they've avoided tax on all the appreciation in their Patagonia stock. All the appreciation of it. Got it. Um, good policy or bad policy? Should that be allowed? Bad policy, uh, though, I would say if you're, th this isn't a reason not to, not to use it for good. Right. Uh, if people who have views different from your own are going to use this, you should play the same game. Um, but uh, the particular concern is uh, that and this gets complicated, but it allows sophisticated donors to create a tax subsidy, getting a negative tax rate on money that then goes to politics-adjacent work. And the way to do that would be you buy a portfolio of stocks. The ones that go up, you give to your C4. The ones that go down, you sell and claim the losses. So you now are essentially getting subsidized by the federal government for political work. And I'd love that to happen for the causes that I like, but I don't think that's a good macro policy. Got it. So if you were Soros, Bloomberg, Koch brothers, people who are playing at a, at a very, very high level, and they, you know, after Merrick Garland got done discussing with you whether or not Trump should be indicted, and they said, okay, Dan, um, we could either use our fortune and sort of funnel it into politics, because all, let's say you're Koch, right? And say, I have these very libertarian right-wing views, not necessarily my views, probably not your views, I'm guessing, but, but nonetheless, um, I just want to have the highest impact in ROI, you would then say, yes, you guys should combine your philanthropy with politics as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I think you should probably be working on advocacy efforts through C4s rather than dumping the hundredth million dollar into uh, the Georgia Senate race. So, so when you think about structural, because obviously this is, we are not talking about hacks to a very flawed system, right? And we're like, okay, how do we try to do some good within a totally fucked up environment? If, if you were starting the whole thing over again, would you use tax policy to incentivize behavior in certain ways? Or do you think it'd be better off just as a straight, pure revenue generator without any sort of moral component to it? I think it inevitably has a moral component. Uh, the reason why we have a progressive income tax is because we think that there's something morally important about redistribution. 
Um, and I have no objection to using tax policy to incentivize behaviors that we want and discouraging behaviors that we don't. I would say on the, on the charitable side, I think there should be a subsidy from the federal government for charitable activity. I think you're generating a positive externality uh, when you give money to charity. We would prefer that you spend that money on charity than on a yacht. Uh, what I don't think makes sense is the fact that highest bracket taxpayers get a bigger benefit than lower bracket taxpayers. I think we should have a subsidy of, say, 20 cents on the dollar for everyone when you give money to charity. So when you give money, you got that deduction kind of. Right. It, it, would be a, it would be a credit rather than a deduction. So it wouldn't depend upon your marginal so, rate. So how do you decide, and this is getting a little wonky here now, but okay. So there are things like childcare, tax credits, universal basic income payments, even kind of outside philanthropy, then le leveraging tax dollars in different ways, right? And then there's sort of the functioning of government, right? And things that government um, need, it's, you have a collective action problem if you don't have government do them as a whole. I mean, it feels to me that almost if we were really being thorough, we would go through all of the activities of government and say, these are effective as is. These work being done at scale from a mass institution. Um, that could be building roads, it could be Medicare, it could be Social Security Administration, whatever it is, defense. And these things are ineffective, right? And that might be, uh, taking care of young children or educating them or providing health care, whatever it is. Um, you know, the libertarians who say government's bad at everything and everything should be done by the market and the private sector, I think that's sort of pretty clearly false. The socialists who say the government is good at everything, they've never actually made a dollar in their lives or run anything other than, you know, political advocacy campaigns. That's clearly false. I'm giving you the magic wand now yet for the third time. Um, broadly speaking, if I let you restructure government, to have the highest efficacy at all times. How much do you think of what we're currently doing continues and how much do you sort of wipe out and replace with some sort of private activity? I think your 50% guess uh, is, um, is probably approximately right. Uh, what I would say is rather than just relying on the private sector to provide redistribution, what I would have the federal government do is a lot more direct redistribution. Right. So tax rates wouldn't be going down. It's just that more of the money would be ending up as cash to lower-income households. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we should go uh, in that direction. Um, there are probably some areas where I think the federal government should be doing more than it is that aren't in that redistribution department. Like so what? I would say uh, medical research. Okay. Um, say we're spending not enough yeah. on developing new drugs. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely on board with the more redistribution, less government provision of services with one asterisk, uh, which is uh, if you give me the magic wand, sure, this works. Uh, the problem is how do you make this politically sustainable? And there are a bunch of programs that uh, are not the most efficient way of achieving their goal, uh, but they have created constituencies, whether yeah. they're public sector unions or private sector banks that claim a particular uh, tax credit, uh, and those programs exist. And those programs may be better than the programs that I would create with my magic wand, but then would be repealed the next year by Congress. Yeah, that, that's that's potentially right. At the same time, a lot of those programs survive simply because we live in a world of gerrymandering and low turnout primaries and relatively ideological or small groups of interest can control the outcome and therefore dictate the policies that perpetuate their specific programs, their specific benefits, and all of that. If you had radically higher primary turnout through something like mobile voting, um, then arguably 
it would lead to a kind of more rational review of all of our policies for are they good for society as opposed to are they good for SEIU or Citibank or, or whatever it is. Um, let me pivot to the last topic here. It wasn't on my list, but, but we were talking about when you came in, which is you are rereading The Power Broker by Robert Moses. So the, the first question is, what made you choose to reread it? Um, I'm in New York City, uh, and I realized that so much of the built environment that I inhabit uh, is Robert Moses. Uh, the reason why, you know, if I'm walking down the west side, I get to the west side highway or Riverside Drive before I get to the Hudson is because of Robert Moses. Uh, so I wanted to, while in the place, appreciate his impact. Okay, so we're now 50 years plus removed from Moses's sort of tenure in public service. Do you feel like his tangible impact on the city is still extremely significant, or do you think it's waning over time? Um, it's waning less over time than, uh, well, Robert Caro predicted that it would, uh, he has a line where he says, you know, even 50 years from now, we'll still see Robert Moses' impact yeah. uh, everywhere. And I think we do. I think what would have been uh, difficult to foresee then, though Caro somewhat saw it, uh, was just how much harder it would be to build after Robert Moses, right? One takeaway from the book is Robert Moses was not a nice guy. I would not want him to be my friend. Uh, on the other hand, he was able to put together public works projects uh, in a matter of months that now would take decades and probably not get done in the end. Right. So, so I mean, it's funny. When I read, so I, my first job out of college was at the Parks Department. Uh, I forgot Henry Stern, and like literally the first thing you had to do was read The Power Broker, and I fucking loved it, and spent four years at Parks, and it's, it's still in some ways the most fun job I've, I've ever had. The thesis then was, and I get that this is somewhat based on sort of the demographics of the people having the conversation, but was that, thank God for Moses, you had this independent actor who was smart enough, tough enough, savvy enough politically to make all of this stuff happen, whereas if the system just sort of ran itself in its normal way, most of the stuff wouldn't have happened and we would be worse off. I would argue, although you and Hugo disagreed when we started talking about this before it came on the air, that there's been sort of a reevaluation of Moses under today's politics and a lot of, whereas 60 years ago he might have had a positive approval rating and 30 years ago no one would have ever heard of him. Now it's more like I would say to be negative because there's this feeling of here's this one guy, this sort of straight, rich, white man who effectively imposed his will on communities without their input all over the city, all over the state. So I would argue that that the public opinion of Moses has declined considerably. You don't think that way. I think there are two phenomena that affect public opinion of Moses to the extent that there's a public opinion oh, yeah, of Moses. By the way, on the right. street right now, Orchard Street, right. people are holding signs up, pro-Moses, anti-Moses, it's fucking nuts, right. yeah. Uh, that go in, two, go in opposite directions. On the other hand, uh, on the one hand, um, the emergence of a real Yimbyist, yes in my backyard movement yeah. uh, in uh, New York City and elsewhere um, recasts Jane Jacobs from hero role to quasi-villain role. And Robert Moses as... Um, her antagonist looks better uh, as Yimbyism uh, ascends. Um, on the other hand, Robert Moses was a virulent racist uh, who did some really terrible stuff, like reduce the temperature in pools near African American communities so that African Americans wouldn't use his pools, build fewer parks in Harlem than in the rest of the city, uh, where uh, that wasn't a forgivable sin in the middle of the 20th century, but I think there were more 
uh, New York liberals who were willing to forgive that then uh, than would be now. Than would be now, right? It's interesting. So, like, when are we got to stop? But like, so your your wife, I would assume, as an affordable ha- ha- housing expert, I think, without knowing her at all, despite the fact that I pretended she was our best fire listener a minute ago. Um, would argue in some ways that the Jane Jacobs theory is the last approach we should take because what we ultimately need is massive amounts of dense vertical housing to try to capture the needs of all of these people, which is literally the opposite of her theory. So even among, let's call it intellectual, I'll, I'll put your wife in a box and say somewhat progressive uh, activists and thinkers, do you think Jacobs sort of has lost credit simply because her views of the world are so unrealistic compared to the way we now live? Um. Speaking solely for myself uh, yes. and not, not for my spouse, um, I would say Jacob's, uh, her emphasis on community involvement, um, I think we still agree with that. Um, but uh, I think the view now is we need more density. Uh, and Jane Jacobs uh, didn't want Greenwich Village to become skyscrapers. And I love Greenwich Village, but I kind of wish it were skyscrapers. Right. You, can, you can't. And, and it's funny, my son and I were talking about this yesterday and he was asking kind of how the solution of more vertical building in Manhattan ultimately leads to more affordable housing in Brooklyn or Queens and the way I explained it was you build all the way up a lot of people currently live in Brooklyn and Queens realize oh I can't afford to live in Manhattan because the supply just exponentially increased which means the price came down and then that frees up housing all along the line but it's sort of a trickle-down mentality to it um, I don't know. It seems pretty direct. Works. We increase housing supply, the price of housing is going to go down. Yeah. No. I look. I, so under that theory, and I know now we're way over time, but would you get rid of rent control and rent stabilization? Um, I would replace rent control with. Uh, I think we there would be some low-income people who would be a lot worse off without uh, rent control. So I'd like to see the city do more redistribution, less of it in the form of rent control. Yeah. If I were mayor rent control would go away. Right. And that is a tough, I'm not even sure that Mike took that one on like that. There are certain, I mean, there's a little bit because there's like a board that approves increase and stuff like that, but talk about third fucking rail politics in New York. So anyway, Dan, how do people learn more about your work? How do they find you? That kind of stuff. Uh, my website at uh, NYU's uh, law school. Um, you can read my papers there, see my op-eds. Cool. I hope everyone does it. And thanks okay. for joining us. Thanks for having me.